The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Good morning. Today's scripture reading is from Luke 18, 9-14. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give all the tithes that I would get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes up to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. All right. That was pretty cool to have Sophie read that. Thanks, Sophie. And honestly, it wasn't even planned. So good job, Sophie. Um, the parables of Jesus, they function a little bit like an x-ray. I've had a lot of x-rays, a lot of, a lot of, a lot of dental work been done here. Um, I had a lot of like CAT scans and kind of, probably more than someone my age probably should have. I'm a little bit of a hypochondriac. But do you think about when you look at an x-ray of yourself for a second? Have you ever seen one of those, like a real CAT scan? I remember one time I had a kidney stone and they looked at one of those where the guy who had done the x-ray was a friend of mine and he said, come here and look at this. And he was just scanning through different things. He was like, that's your kidneys, that's your liver, that's your like what? It's the weirdest thing to see your insides on a screen. Freaks me out. Jesus' parables show us our inside. They show us somehow, mysteriously, something that we can't see and that others cannot see. And Luke actually gives us how this x-ray of this parable, why Jesus taught it. Look at verse 9. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. And here's why this is important. They didn't know that they were trusting in themselves that they were righteous. We don't consciously think how righteous I am and how much better I am than other people. That is buried. That is tacit. That is implicit. That's why these parables are so powerful is because what they do is they actually reveal that we're trusting in our own goodness, our own talents, for a long time, and I've preached this parable a number of times. When you've been in ministry, you've, this is like one of the greatest hits as far as parables are concerned. Preach this one a lot. But I've never thought to myself, could I be the Pharisee in this? No. But I think Jesus wants us to see ourselves as people who desperately need this x-ray. To show us what we're really trusting in so that he might free us to put all our trust in Jesus. That's why this doctrine of justification, which is really the word righteous that's used in verse 9 and verse 14, which is the Greek word dikaios, 
For those who are righteous, and it says this man went home justified. That is man, one of the men went home justified, went home righteous, but it's not the man that you thought. This doctrine of justification is how can we be right with God? I think is most beautifully articulated, not only in the words of Scripture, definitely, but in what's called the Heidelberg Catechism. The Heidelberg Catechism was written in 1563. Thank you, Lee Eric Fesco, who told me that right before the service. 1563, over 200 years before the founding of our country. Now, I, I'm gonna, I literally, I'm going to put this, I don't normally do this. I'm going to put this on the screen, the Heidelberg Catechism. Question number 60, what is justification? So we can pull that up. How are we righteous before God? Only by true faith in Jesus Christ. Although my conscience accuses me that I have grievously sinned against all God's commandments, having never kept any of them, and still inclined to all evil, yet God, without any merit of my own, out of mere grace, which Karl Barth called laughter, mere grace imputes to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. He grants these to me as if I had never committed nor committed any sin. As if you've never committed one sin. And as if I myself had accomplished all the obedience which Christ had rendered for me if I only accept this gift with a believing heart. You know what that means? This is outrageous. Let's not fall asleep to the doctrine of justification. This means that you and I, who, by the way, are totally messed up. If we would see the x-ray, we would be grossed out. If you could see my x-ray. I am as righteous as the second person of the Trinity. In God's eyes, I'm perfect. And I'm totally imperfect. Martin Luther said that when he began to really truly in, truly embrace this doctrine of justification, as we find it in the book of Romans especially, he said the gates of paradise open. The freedom that we're really, really, truly looking for is for God to give us his alien righteousness. So we're going to look at three things. First, the people who, who aren't justified. How not to be justified by self-righteous pride. Not justified by self-righteous pride. Justified by a needy, humble faith. So what? Self-righteous pride, humble, needy faith, so what? Let's go. All right. We're not justified by a self-justifying, self-righteous pride. We look at the Pharisee. Jesus gives us this really clear, simple, and eternally profound story. Let's look at this guy, the Pharisee. I want you to see something. He's truly a good guy. He's a good guy. My tendency was kind of like sort of give out like a boo when the Pharisees would come out, you know, boo. But that is not at all how the first readers would have seen the Pharisees. That's not at all. We can miss if we don't see this guy as outwardly religious and outwardly faithful and, and outwardly moral. And, and the, 
the Pharisees were fighting tooth and nail to preserve the identity of Israel. They were important people and powerful people and influential people. He said, I fast, he, he says in his prayer, I fast twice a week. You're only really required to fast like once a year, really, on the Day of Atonement. But twice a week? I mean, we're talking about, you talk about an honor student. He's clean. He's very hireable, very attractive. His resume was very impressive. We would not see the Pharisee as Voldemort. Oh, I just named it. I'm sorry. He who cannot be named. Or so for another generation, we would not see him as Darth Vader. We would see, we would see him more like Dumbledore. He would have been more like Obi-Wan Kenobi. See, we don't get to identify with Jesus in this parable. That's not the option. Because here's the point. There's Jesus and then there's everyone else. The tax collector and the Pharisee actually are the same. There's Jesus, the righteous one, and then there's everyone else. Then there's the rest of us. They're the same. Humans, broken. One person knows it and the other person doesn't. And one is justified and one isn't. It kind of reminds me of Psalm 103 when it says that God remembers that we are dust. I love Eugene Peterson's translation of Psalm 103 there. It says we are, he knows that we're made of mud, all of us. And it's almost like the tax collector realizes that he's made of dust and that he's broken and that the Pharisee He's not owning the fact that he's just like the tax collector. And that's real. Y'all listen to this. Isn't it really, really offensive? But see, trusting in our self-righteousness is what enslaves us. It's what makes us have contempt for other people. Listen to what T.S. Eliot, the poet T.S. Eliot said. Half the harm that is done in this world is due to people who want to feel important. They don't mean to do harm, but the harm does not interest them, or they don't see it, or they justify it because they are, listen to this, absorbed in the endless struggle to think well of themselves. Absorbed in the endless struggle to think well of themselves. Maybe you're different than me. Maybe y'all got this figured out. I am absorbed and an endless struggle to think well of myself. Not even up here, but down here, tacitly, implicitly, every single day. I must think well of myself. That is the human condition. Well, think about it, how we self-justify. We're just like the Pharisee. We cannot face our guilt and our shame. An endless struggle to think well of ourselves. You may think to yourself, I may not be a perfect husband, but I'm not like the guy that cheated. That's the bad guy. I'm the good guy. Or, look, I'm not perfect, but I'm, like a, I'm not like a criminal. We're always trying to balance the scale. Always wanting to look at our good sides. You know, there's a pecking order even in prison. You know that. Like the real bad criminals. And you go to jail and it's like, I don't know, y'all are all in jail for a long time. 
But there is something, maybe that's our greatest addiction, the need to think well of ourselves. And that thinking well of ourselves, we must think poorly of someone else. That is the, that is the greatest diagnostic test of whether you and I are self-justifiers. It's what you think about other people. See how brilliant Jesus is. Who do you have contempt for? Or, another way of saying this, who are the people that you are so glad God didn't make you one of? And that, as the mechanic would say in Arkansas, there's your trouble. Who do you have to be? And if you weren't this person, or you didn't have these things, you wouldn't know who you were, and you wouldn't feel like you had any value. You would feel like worthless. Maybe you're thinking, I'm not like one of my siblings. I'm the good sibling. And here's the thing. Maybe you actually are better than her. Like, you didn't get kicked out of college. You did all the things right. And so here's the thing. But here's an, isn't it strange that you have contempt for your sister and everyone that's like your sister? And your goodness and having to be good, if you're honest, is making you miserable. That's how Jesus, that's why Jesus tells these parables. He's so kind. He's talking to the most righteous person in the whole nation of Israel, the Pharisee, to free them from their goodness. Which reminds me of one of my favorite quotes from John Gerstner, theologian, in the last century. The main thing between you and God is not so much your sin. It's your damnable good works. I'm going to say that one again. The main thing between you and God is not your sin, although that's bad. It's your damnable good works. It's who you have to be and who you cling to. It's why we're so insecure as Christians. Why so many of us are so insecure. Listen to what Richard Loveless wrote. I love this quote. It's a little long, but just bear with me. Christians who are no longer sure that God loves and accepts them in Jesus, apart from their present spiritual achievements, are subconsciously radically insecure persons. Much less secure than non-Christians because they have the constant bulletins they receive from their Christian environment about the holiness of God and the righteousness that they're supposed to have. Their insecurity shows itself in pride a fierce defensive assertion of their own righteousness and a defensive criticism of others, they come naturally, listen to this, the doctrine of justification, when we are self-justifying, we're not thinking about it this way, we're thinking it right here, this is why he says we hate other cultural styles and races in order to bolster our own security and discharge their suppressed anger clinging deeply and desperately to illegal, pharisaical righteousness. But you know what grows underneath that? Jealousy, envy, gossip, malice, rage, with a big, beautiful PCA smile on it, and it smells great. But kind of like, those sins are kind of like ferns. They grow in the shade. 
That's what Jesus tells this parable, to uncover, to unearth. Y'all, you're just having to hear a 30-minute sermon or so. I had to live with this all week. So what does Jesus give us is this beautiful picture, the second point, a humble, needy faith. Who is justified? It is so beautiful and so scandalous. Look at verse 13, the tax collector standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast. And that word for beat is an active verb. He's beating his breast like this. Standing far off, beating his breast. God be merciful to me. God be merciful to me. The sinner. The actual Greek there is the definite article. The sinner. I'm the worst. And Jesus said, This man is justified. You know, I kind of wish we could have like first century ears so we could feel how outrageous and how scandalous it was for Jesus to call a tax collector. Because a tax collector, let me tell you what, they were Voldemort. They were bad. They were Jews who were enlisted, hired by the Roman government, the oppressors, the big evil empire. They were Jews hired to take money for the Romans from their people. Bad. That's why the Pharisee says he's, he's not like the others. In, in, in verse 9, it says he looked down on the others. That's actually a formal way of saying that what he's saying, and one commentator said, they looked down on the people of the land. All the people that were out there, those people, he is like a mobster, and we would have hated his guts if we would have been an Israelite. He's a criminal. Just imagine being taken over by another powerful country, watching every day they are crushing you and oppressing you and your family, your children. dehumanizing you, and then your next-door neighbor starts working for them and he steals from you. That's this guy. And here he is over in the corner, out of sight, ashamed to be there, and he knows what people think about him. He knows that he has no right to be there. No, there is no business being there. And beating his breast, and he's just saying over, have mercy, 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 mercy on me, the sinner. Mercy, mercy, mercy on me, the sinner. He's not comparing himself to anyone, only to God's perfect law, which he has never kept. And he's saying, just have mercy on me. He's throwing himself at the mercy of the court. He's completely at a dead end. He has absolutely nothing to commend himself. And we would look at that. I kind of look at that. And it makes me a little bit nervous. Like, hey, man, don't you have like, anything good that you did? Like, did, weren't you like in the Lions Club? Or like, didn't you do like some like, weren't you like kind of good? Nothing. Nothing in his hands he, cl- he clings, simp- brings simply to the cross he clings. Because this, you know where it says he is. He's in the temple. Let me tell you a little bit about the temple. The temple was like concentric squares. 
you had the outside, and then you had the, when you got in, you had like the court of the Gentiles, and you had the court of the women, and you had different places, concentric, concentric squares. And the further you got into the center, the holier, and the more you, you and I didn't belong there, the holier and holier, until you get to the holy of holies, where the high priest, the holiest man in the holiest nation, were on the holiest day, on the day of atonement, he would go to the Ark of the Covenant. You remember the Ark of the Covenant? You remember Indiana Jones, right? 80s reference, I'm sorry. But the Ark of the Covenant was this thing that God told Moses to make. And right there in the middle of the Ark of the Covenant, there are two cherubim. And the cherubim, they protected the holy places. They protected the sacred places. They protected the the, the Garden of Eden. The flaming sword, and here they are, made of gold, one piece of gold, and their wings are out like this. No one can get there. But do you know what is between them? It's called the mercy seat. Apparently, it's the mean same word as atonement. And what he's doing here is he's just calling down. The, that, that this God, maybe this God will be merciful to me. Maybe this God, he, he says that, that all my sins can be forgiven, that all the blood will be poured out, and that I wouldn't pay for my sins. And this is so outrageous. It's the greatest, greatest surprise ever because Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the mercy seat with skin on and in bones, with feet and hair, a real human being. When he came to this world, as Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5, Jesus, who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. It is that radical, it is that beautiful, it is that scandalous to put every single one of your chips on the mercy of God. And do you realize the word mercy and the word love together comes together in one Hebrew word, hesed, which is God's brand of love. And hesed, God's faithful, loving mercy, his hesed, is the essence of his being. You talk about being on holy ground now. Why was there a mercy seat? Why was there a day of atonement? It's because God's favorite thing is atonement for sinners. That you get closer and closer and closer to the heart of God. What you have is God's love shows itself in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. God's favorite thing, God's favorite thing is to show us mercy. His favorite thing. He is most glorified in the cross. And so see what he's doing? He's saying mercy, 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 mercy on me, mercy. And you know what he's saying over and over again? He is begging for everything God wants to give the world. Not a God who's saying, I don't know, not this time. He's asking for the very essence of God to be poured out on his head. It's like you having children. Some of you have children. Can you imagine your children coming to you and saying, hungry, hungry, hungry. I'm so hungry. What do you have? All I got's bread. I'm thirsty, I'm thirsty, I'm thirsty. And one of your children saying that. And what do you have? All I've got's water. That's why Jesus calls himself the, the bread of life. And humility is telling the truth about ourselves. 
Humility is coming home and telling the truth about yourselves. Even the corners that you don't even understand, the things about our character and the things about our past and all of our self-righteousness, every single bit of that. Humility is this great gift where we can begin to see ourselves clearly. Then we'll be exalted. Where? Exalted to the very holy of holies. And we do, want, do we belong there? No, but Jesus does. And if you're in Christ, you're as righteous as Christ. Thomas Merton once said that pride makes us false and humility makes us real. Let not conscience make you linger, nor a fitness fondly dreamed. The only fitness that he requires is that you feel your need of him. To feel your need of him. This he gives you. This he gives you. Tis the Spirit's rising beam. Here's what I'm saying. If you're here today and you're kind of shocked by how much you need Jesus to be all that he says he is, cheer up. That's faith. All you need is to need Jesus. There isn't like another step, like step A, point one or step A.2, there is just need. I need Jesus to be this awesome because I am this wrecked. I am this broken. You come to that, that is the greatest gift you could ever receive in the entire universe is to need Jesus Christ. His name means salvation. So to even say his name, you're calling out for salvation. So what? I'll close with this real quick. First, There is nothing that you've done or will do that the Son of God, through the triune work of God and the Father's pleasure and the application, the work of the Holy Spirit, that he cannot forgive. You've met your match. And some of us have lived our whole lives hiding in the shadows thinking it must be true for other people. It could be true for other people. Do you realize that that's another form of self-righteousness? You're saying God is not good enough or gracious enough to forgive you. Who do you think you are, Richie? How long have I lived my life that way? I'm too bad. I'm too messed up. All those different things, and I throw that up to God. Repent of your repentance. Some of you are good. but it doesn't give you any peace. Some of you are outwardly good and it's making you cold and insecure. And I know you don't want to face that. It kind of ticks you off a little bit that I even said it. Well, I'm a guest preacher. I can say stuff like that. But in Romans 5.1, it says, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. What if God is warning you a little bit today just to admit how judgmental you are and how self-righteous you are and how maybe you even blame your spouse for all your problems? Or you look down on other people and what Jesus is trying to do, he's trying to show you the x-ray and say, give it to me a little bit more today. Own it. And you begin to feel your need. But here's the thing. His grace is infinitely greater than your need infinitely greater than your need. Second, we say we're justified by faith, not by works. That's like our whole thing. That's like our big thing, reform people, right? By faith alone. But here's the thing. Do y'all really know what that means? 
by faith. But faith kind of seems like this nebulous thing. Faith almost kind of becomes a work. Like I have this thing called faith, and so like you may like really want to, like faith must be really wanting it or being sincere or feeling a certain way, that there's a certain thing that you have to do, or you need to be a spaz like me, then you have faith. No, like faith is needing Jesus. And Horatius Bonner, he has one of the greatest quotes. He was a Scottish Presbyterian in the 1800s. Listen to what he says. Faith is nothing. Christ is everything. Faith is not Christ. Faith is not what makes you righteous. Christ is what makes you righteous. Faith is not the cross. Faith is not the blood. Faith is not the sacrifice. Faith is not the altar. Faith is not the mercy seat. It does not work. It, ex- it, accepts, it accepts a work done ages ago. It does not create. It links you to the new creation. Faith is your need. Here's the thing. What is salvation? What is justification? It's having Jesus. Having Jesus, having Jesus means having everything that God has promised to us in Jesus. God's grace, God's salvation, eternal life. Having Jesus. Salvation is not a thing that he doles out like some kind of product. Salvation is being united to Jesus. It's a relationship. Third, maybe you're here and you still feel like, how can I be justified and still be struggling so much? That's like been the biggest question I've had. I remember I really felt this when I was in seminary. Because like when you get to seminary, you're supposed to kind of have it figured out. Or at least that's what the other guys were showing me by what they were telling me. They had already kind of arrived. Everything was sort of great when you get to seminary. All seminary did was turn my insecurities up to 11. That was fun. I felt like a total phony. Why does God allow us to still struggle with sin, Romans 7, 14 through 25, when we're justified? Does that mean we're not justified if we're still struggling with sin? He could take it away, but he doesn't. John Newton says it. My favorite dead Christian, John Newton, the one who wrote Amazing Grace. Listen to what he says. I was reminded of this letter. John Newton's letters, go get them. They're amazing. He said, after a long experience of our own deceitful hearts and after repeated proofs of our weaknesses and our willfulness and ingratitude and insensibility, we find that none of these things can separate us from the love of God in Christ. And when that happens, as we're struggling and nothing can separate us, he says, Jesus becomes more and more precious to you. The more you need Jesus and you feel your need for Jesus, the more you see of your own depravity and the more you see of your own grace, Jesus becomes more and more precious, more and more wonderful because he sees the whole CAT scan and he says, I love you and accept you. That is bananas, folks. Newton goes on to say, he who believes and feels their own weakness and unworthiness and lives upon the grace and pardoning love of his Lord has a habitual tenderness and gentleness of spirit. The more we confess, this is so crazy, the more we confess and know how much we need Jesus, the more we experience Jesus being more than we could ever possibly want or need. It humbles us and actually makes you look like Jesus. It begins to slowly cure us of our contempt for other people. We can start cheering for other people. What are you trusting in? In Christ alone, my hope is found.
May we put our trust in him. That is what he's calling. That's the only reason he tells stories like this. That's the only reason he came to earth. Not so we could figure it out, but so that we'd fall on Jesus. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for the privilege of being able to talk to you, talk about you. Thank you for these stories. Thank you for these parables that are so mysterious and powerful. And Holy Spirit, would you make Jesus more precious to us? Free us from what enslaves us. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.